0: Hello, I'm Lyle Troxell, and this is Geek Speak. I'm going to try something a little different today, read some headlines, give you some thoughts. It's not a full episode, but I thought it's been a while. Some headlines from Slashdot.org, the classic nerd website for posts and such. Open submissions, uh, ranked, things like that. OpenSea employees charged with insider trading of NFTs. Now, I'm sure you know how much I dislike non-fungible tokens and how I think they're kind of ridiculous. Um, I urge people not to be in that place at all, um, but that's just me. But U.S. prosecutors in Manhattan on Wednesday um, decided to indict... Uh, an OpenSea employee. Now, OpenSea is a large market for online, for non-fungible tokens for NFTs. um, And he was indicted for insider trading. Nathan Christian was accused by um, secretly buying 45 NFTs based on confidential information that they would soon be featured on OpenSea's homepage and then later selling them. And then uh, to two to three, five times higher than he bought them for. Now, I think this might be the first insider trading in NFTs, but I'm not really sure. I just think it was kind of interesting that even though um, I think it's kind of NFTs are, are not a good thing for the world and not a great place to put your money in kind of a scam, it's interesting to see the FCC cracking down on them. We also see a, a group of renowned technologists have joined forces to urge U.S. lawmakers to crack down on cryptocurrencies industry, making the first concentrated effort to counter well-financed lobbying uh, by blockchain companies. So from the report, Harvard lecturer Bruce Schneider, former Microsoft engineer Miguel de la Casa, and principal engineer at Google Cloud Kelsey Hightower are among 26 leading computer scientists and academics who have signed a letter delivering to U.S. lawmakers, heavily criticizing crypto investments and blockchain technology. While individuals have made similar warnings about the safety and reliability of digital assets, this marks a more organized effort to challenge the growing influence of crypto advocates who want to resist attempts to regulate the sector. The claims that the blockchain, this is a quote, the claims that the blockchain advocates make are not true, said Schneider. Continuing to quote, it's not secure. It's not decentralized. Any system where you forget your password and you lose your life savings is not a safe system. He added, we're counter lobbying. That's what the letter is about. So basically, this is a, a condemnation of the crypto space from technologists. And I think this is really essential because lawmakers for years have listened to people, uh, techn- technology experts. And led them to make decisions. But the crypto space is so complex and so much buzz and junk around it that it's really hard for law- lawmakers to have any understanding of at the, what the space is, if it's going to be important, how to regulate it, how to use it. And so this call out, this open letter call out uh, is great and, and well-deserved. The world's largest plant is a self-cloning seagrass in Australia. The seagrass, not to be confused with seaweed, which is algae, is Poseidon's Ribbon Weed, or Posidonia Australis. Jane Edelgen, a University of Western Australia PhD candidate and an author of the paper, likes its appearances to a spring onion. Uh, Miss Elgis and her colleagues made the discovery as part of a generic survey of Posidonia grasses in different areas of Shark Bay, where scuba divers dove in shallow waters and pulled up shoots from 10 different meadows. On land, the researchers analyzed and compared the grass's DNA. So they published their results Wednesday in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B. It turned out the DNA of many of those seemingly different plants was virtually identical. Elizabeth Sinclair, also the University of Western Australia and an author of the study, recalled excitement in the lab when she realized it's only one plant. While some of the shark bay's northern meadows reproduce sexually, the rest of Poseida clones itself by creating new shoots that branch off from its root system. Even separate meadows were genetically identical, indicating that they were once connected by now-severed roots. So based on how old the bay is and how quickly the seagrass grow, the researchers have surmised that the Shark Bay clone is about 4,500 years old. Pretty cool. This in browser news. New data shows only two browsers with more than a billion users. Basically, Apple Safari web browser has about a billion users, according to estimates by Atlas VPN. Um, And... Only one other browser has more than a billion users, and that's Google's Chrome, uh, at nearly about 3.4 billion. So Chrome leaves Safari in the dust, but it's important to note that numbers include mobile users and not just desktop users. So likely all Apple phones effectively are using Safari. And I'm not sure if the Safari, so the browser, if you're using Chrome, for example, I use Chrome on on my iPhone. But if you use Chrome on your iPhone, what you're actually using is a wrapper that Google makes that does the tracking and other things and user authentication sign-in so you can keep on being logged in the browser and also bookmark syncing and things of that nature. But the actual uh, engine inside the phone, on an iPhone, any web view, if you will, anything that actually renders the page and comprehends the HTML and the JavaScript and CSS and actually makes the web page viable and rendered, that's actually all the same engine, which is the Safari engine in mobile. So when you make an app in the Apple ecosystem and you put it on an iPhone or an iPad, the actual browser itself under the hood is Safari, and that's been happening for a long time. So I'm not sure if this study includes all of the Chrome browsers, if you will, as Safari browsers on an iPhone. But that doesn't really matter because almost everybody uses the standard default that comes with the, with the phone, and that would be Safari. So it's, it's likely highly, highly likely that almost everybody with an iPhone is a Safari user, and therefore that's why that count might be a lot higher. It is still interesting because Safari is not actually available on Android devices. So even you have to remove the entire Android ecosystem um, from the count of Safari Mobile. So pretty interesting. There's a great blog post about this that I'll link to from the show notes um, Atlantis VPN posted. Basically, any site that that traffics a lot of data, any any website that has a lot of data trafficking happening, like uh, Atlas VPN, can do st- statistical analysis from their user base and then assume that user base is representational. Now, I'm a little bit skeptical about the representation of a company like that because VPN services are traditionally used by people with more funds, more more money. And so you're talking about probably a skew on the general population to people that have a little bit more money. And iPhones are more expensive than other phones, so you're going to see a, a bit of a beef on, on Safari. But it's still interesting to see that kind of numbers. So Microsoft is killing money in Excel along with Wolfram Alpha data types. So Excel, of course the famous Excel spreadsheet, I mean, basically, the Kleenex, if you will, of spreadsheet software, the company announced that it's going to stopping using these data types. Now, what a data type in Excel means is that you can um, you can basically pull in. So some data types would be like a string or in a number or a date. These are different data types. And in Excel, you can actually do some programming in it. And one of the things you can actually do is pull in data from other sources. So you can pull in information from Wolfram well, Alpha, which is a search engine and computing system uh, service. But you can pull in data types from them. And basically, your Excel spreadsheet can actually look up things from external sources. And money in Excel was one of the big features Microsoft touted when it rebranded Office 365. And essentially, it allowed you to easily import data from your bank. To help you keep an eye on your finances. And this is really kind of neat, because you could do an Excel spreadsheet that had your authentication tokens that accessed your bank account information and pulled data in. So you open up the spreadsheet, it would run for a few minutes, get in the data, and then you'd actually have your real bank data in Excel. I never use this, I kind of get out of this space, but it's fascinating to be able to do this kind of thing. And it really allowed you to do, I mean, as soon as you have an Excel, you can do tons of other things in chart, graph it, um, keep track of it. And of course, Excel documents can be opened in different formats. So your bank might not have um, a good mobile app, but you could make an Excel spreadsheet that accesses it and you could open that on your mobile device. So it's kind of sad that it's that's going away, um, probably just a lower use of it, uh, what led to this. And then of course, the other thing would be Wolfram Alpha. And I never used that, but um, the Wolfram Alpha data types um, Microsoft first introduced it in July of 2020, so it's relatively new, and it'll stop working this June. Oh no, June next year, excuse me. So they'll last less than three years in total. Um, it's like a hundred different Wolfram Alpha data types, uh, and it seemed like there was a really good connection between them, but but unfortunately, it's going to the to the side. It's not going to happen anymore, which is a bummer. And this basically means that if you use that data. Uh, the money or the other one, it just will not refresh after they turn it off. And the money is going to turn off in June 30th of 2023. Just a bummer, but no, not a big thing, I guess. So Samsung is going to close its LCD business, which I just thought was kind of interesting. Samsung Display, a subsidiary of Samsung, of course, has decided to close its Liquid Crystal Display's LCD business in June. It's hobbled by a declining global competitive edge due to cheaper products made in its Chinese and Taiwanese counterparts. According to Display Supply Chain Consultants, DSCC, a U.S. market research firm, the average price index of an LCD panels measured against 100 in January 2014 fell to 36.6 in September of this year. So quite a bit of a, a decline in the average price this figure has dropped farther from the rec- record low of 41.5 in April this year and 58% lower than the record high of 87 June of 2021. Samsung Display will no longer produce LCD- LCDs used for large TV screens and focus instead on manufacturing organic light emitting diodes or OLED And Quantum Dot QD displays, the employees of the LCD business are expected to be transferred to the QD business. So the employees of the LCD group will just go to the Quantum Display uh, group, which makes sense because unlike OLED, uh, Quantum Dot displays are much more similar in the manufacturing process to LCDs than OLED. So it doesn't make sense that you'd move the same people over To the Quantum Dot business part of it. The display affiliate was first formed in 1991 as an LCD business arm under Samsung Electronics. It does make sense. LCDs have reduced in price a lot. One of the things I've also noticed is that, and this is maybe just not important to the general uh, consumer base, but as a electronic hobbyist and stuff, the small LCD um, home maker space has just exploded. It's really easy. And OLEDs as well. It's really easy to get small displays and oh and uh e-paper displays as well that you can program really simply. So they're fun to play with. Um and it's just been neat to see the price drop. And of course this is not the Samsung closing L C D business is not a giant surprise. We're gonna see more quantum dot displays. We're gonna see more OLEDs displays. And uh, LCDs displays will still be there, but they're not going to be the top of the market. Like the LCD TVs will become less uh, the high-end TVs because the OLEDs are so much better from a performance perspective as a television screen. I'm going to close a bit on mindfulness. This is actually the thing that made me think of doing a Geek Speak episode. Um, And I just wanted to fill in some news before I talked about this, just so it's still Geek Speak. But this is a little bit of deviation, and that is about meditation and mindfulness. And we've had some themes along the way of Geek Speak about about, um, how we perceive the world. I had a whole series in January where I recorded an episode every day. And I think I aired a couple of those episodes here on Geek Speak. Uh, It was called Lunch with Lyle. You can find it on any podcast of your choice. But I did dive into some of this this mindfulness kind of stuff, or at least some ideas of how we think and how we live a happy life. That was kind of the theme of the podcast. And um, I had a great episode with Ben on that series, talking about perception. But as I've been thinking more and more about perception and how I actually engage in the world, and meditated. I really wanted to urge people to kind of think about um, how we think, how we position ourselves in the world. And if you're not doing that, if, you're, if you've got a geeky mind and you've always been turned off from the woo associated with meditation, I totally understand that. I grew up in a hippie home and that woo aspect was always a little bit discouraging for me to think about meditation. I was like, and then you can be magical in it. You know, you'll change the world. Those things, I'm not talking about the woundness. I am talking about we, our brains are complex, our perceptions and our our translation of what we see in the world to what's actually happening in the world or what's happening in our mind is really complicated. A great way to kind of see this and explore this is looking at optical illusions that mess with your perception. The Muller-Lyer illusion is a great example of this. Uh, two lines or three lines, multiple lines stacked on top of each other, the exact same length. And you're familiar with an arrow, a traditional like uh, arrow that you draw on a piece of paper. Imagine the, the line has an arrowhead pointing to the left and an arrowhead pointing to the right. And then the next line below that, instead of the arrowheads pointing away, they're kind of pointing towards the line. And the line segments themselves are exactly the same length, but your mind really makes the one where the arrowheads are pointing towards the line look a lot longer. And this is just about how your brain processes information. It's not a direct path. Anyway, that happens for everything we perceive. Everything we perceive is shifted and modified by our mind. And for me, understanding that my perception of the world is just that, just the perception of the world, and that everything that comes into me is modified and manipulated by my intake mechanisms, if you will, but also the state of my mind, knowing this and understanding this has allowed me to feel a little bit, allowed me to put down a bit of the ownership of my feelings about the world. So let's say I get into um, a debate or an argument with somebody and we see things differently. I am much lo- much less likely to take on the emotional state of being angry, but instead recognize that my system or my body or my my yeah my system that's the best way to describe it is potentially angry, but not to own that mental state, but to recognize it. It's a little complicated to describe it this way, and I do sound a little bit wooish when I'm describing it, but this is this has led for me to feel a little bit more contentment, maybe a little bit of disconnect. Uh, which i'm still working on but definitely i feel healthier in the way i look at the world and the way i process things and this is a direct response from meditation and frank- and from thinking about how i think so this all came up this episode came about because uh the waking up group sent out a letter to um everybody that subscribes to the app and that open letter uh, called the true purpose of mindfulness. I went and said, decided to read it to all of you. And then as I was looking at it and deciding to read it, it felt very commercial, a little bit strange. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's not really what I'm trying to do. But on that waking up uh, page on an open letter page, which is linked to from the show notes, there's a description, uh, a reading from, from Sam Harris, who founded waking up, uh, podcast and the meditation app Waking Up. And that letter describes it's Sam Harris about 9 minutes of him describing what's different about the Waking Up app. And it fits for me, it rings for me. And please feel free to just stop the episode now if you're done with this topic. That's completely fine. But here is Sam Harris describing what the Waking Up meditation app how it's different than other meditation apps.
1: I hope you enjoy. There are many approaches to meditation. There are thousands upon thousands of books on the topic and now hundreds of meditation apps to help you practice. So how is waking up different? Well, first let me say that everything that's in waking up is here because I think it will help you understand the nature of your mind and experience greater freedom in your life. But waking up is not a conventional meditation app. Whatever your expectations were in downloading the app, its purpose is to radically transform your sense of what life is about. There are two main approaches to teaching meditation. You can try to modernize it and put it in conversation with 21st century science. Or you can present it in some traditional way, more or less as it's been taught for millennia in various schools of Buddhism or Indian spirituality. Apps that take the first approach and present meditation as a fully modern and secular practice, which has a range of health benefits, invariably dumb down the practice and divorce it from its actual purpose. The purpose of meditation is to truly wake up from the unhappy dream you call your life, not merely to lower your blood pressure in that dream. Conversely, approaches to meditation that maintain a connection to its traditional purpose tend to endorse a whole raft of metaphysical dogmas that are very hard to justify rationally. Whether it's under the guise of New Age spirituality or traditional religion, these approaches are increasingly in conflict with a modern scientific understanding of the world. But there is a third path through this wilderness, and it's the one I attempt to follow in waking up. The purpose of meditation isn't merely to de-stress, or to sleep better, or to learn to be a little less neurotic. The purpose is to radically transform your sense of who and what you are. So you won't find any simplistic message about the benefits of meditation here. There are benefits to meditation, and many of them are now being studied by neuroscientists and psychologists. But most of this research is actually of secondary importance, and I discuss why that's the case in various places in the app. The real purpose of meditation is to have fundamental insights into the nature of your mind, insights that change your whole approach to life. Sometimes I've been asked, if you could go back in time and speak to your younger self, what would you say? Well. Waking up is my long-form answer to that question. And while the app is appropriate for people who have never meditated before, the truth is I'm also teaching things that I didn't understand even after having spent a cumulative year on silent retreat. There is something paradoxical about the practice of meditation and about the whole project of trying to understand oneself for the purpose of living a better life. And in waking up, we don't shy away from this paradox. The more you examine your mind, the more you discover that there's no fixed truth to who you are as a person, and you realize that you've persisted in the same ruts year after year for no good reason. Deeper still, you discover that your very efforts to improve your experience are generally what prevent you from recognizing the depth and beauty of even the most ordinary moments in life. And you realize that to seek happiness, in all the usual ways, is to overlook it now. Most people who begin practicing meditation do so for the purpose of solving some apparent problem in their lives. They're unhappy, and meditation has been recommended as a remedy. Embraced as a tool in this way, it becomes a trap. Now, it's a better trap than most, but when practiced as a method of producing more pleasant states of mind, Meditation is just another way of staying asleep. The analogy to sleep and dreaming is quite literal. It is as if each of us is asleep and dreaming that we're in a prison of some kind. And most of us are just trying to make the best of it. The crucial point is that we don't know we're dreaming. Most people don't know how much their thoughts are structuring their experience of the world. And not knowing we're dreaming... We find ourselves surrounded on all sides by things that we want and things that we hate and fear. We do our best to distract ourselves, of course, and happily they gave us smartphones around 2007, and these provide endless entertainment. And meditation, among other spiritual practices, is offered as a means of escaping this prison, which sounds great, right? Rather than accommodate ourselves to the ordinary routines of unhappiness, Rather than being merely egocentric and envious of other people's success and endlessly worried about the future, why not break out of this place altogether and be free? But the problem is, this advice gets assimilated by the logic of the dream itself. Some traditions recommend that you begin sawing at the bars of your cell early in the morning when the guards are still asleep. Others offer what purport to be blueprints of the prison so that you can begin digging a tunnel in the right direction. And many people spend their whole lives struggling to escape from a dream prison, rather than simply waking up. The truth is is that when you really learn to meditate, you discover that you didn't have the problem that you thought you had. And then meditation, and life itself, becomes a far more interesting game. And your understanding of yourself in relationship to the world fundamentally changes. The part of reality that is outside of your mind isn't something that you ever come into direct contact with. This should indicate how important your mind is in determining the nature of your experience, because it is the source and substance of all of your experience. Realizing this is enormously empowering. So waking up isn't about merely reducing stress or having better relationships. Though I would say it's good for those things, too. It's about confronting some of the deepest questions in human life. For instance, how can we be truly happy when all that we experience quickly fades and disappears? When every desire we satisfy, or goal we achieve, reveals itself to have been a kind of mirage? Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that you never quite arrive? What is the connection between being happier and more fulfilled and being a genuinely good person? How can we make sense of the fact that many great meditation teachers have created tremendous harm for their students? And just how good could human life become if we all got our heads screwed on straight? How many of the world's problems will be solved by each of us becoming better people individually? And how many require systemic cultural change? What's the connection between seeing reality clearly and being free psychologically? How is human suffering related to not understanding what is true about the nature of our minds? Is there a connection? And how does any insight along these lines relate to our growing scientific understanding of the world? I think these are some of the most important questions human beings ever ask. So waking up isn't a mental fitness app in the usual sense. The point isn't just to add another arrow to your quiver in your battle for self improvement. Of course, there's nothing wrong with dieting and getting in shape and tracking your sleep and setting goals or doing any of the other things that people do to improve their lives. But I have much deeper interests myself and I have much deeper hopes For you. The point of waking up is to realize specific things about the nature of your own mind that very few people ever realize, and to be changed by these discoveries. And then the point is to integrate these new ways of seeing and being with a growing commitment to making the world better than it was yesterday. So, the goal of waking up is to offer a scientifically and philosophically sound response. To the mystery of our being in the world. For me, this journey started years ago, and I'm still on it. And I've built Waking Up so that you can join me anytime you like.
0: Geek Speak is a registered service mark of David Lawrence, who's used permission. The theme is by Michael Newman of Pet Star Music. I'm Lyle Troxell. You can read anything about Geekspeak and listen to old episodes at geekspeak.org. You can follow me for information and thoughts about the world on Instagram. I'm Troxell, T R O X E L L. On uh, Twitter, I'm Lyle L Y L E. And you can send me direct email, lyle at geekspeak.org. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Geekspeak. Hey, and if you've got thoughts on this, please do let me know. Is this worth it? Is it fun to have me chat every once in a while about some stuff? Let me know. Thanks. Bye.